Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to take a moment. um, The Lord has been waking me up most mornings to pray around 5 o'clock. There's just such a sense of heaviness. And especially this week, uh, just have seen how how much evil there is in our nation. And I'm particularly talking about seeing the anti-Asian beginning to to rise up in a, you know, against this violence and hatred against people of Asian heritage. Um, I mean, it was, it was tough enough when you see a grandmother beaten up, but then to see an attack where so many people are killed in one day. And you can't miss these things that, that in revealing this unrest and revealing the violence in our nation, the Lord is speaking and saying that, that there, needs, there needs to be a move of His Spirit like never before. It's not that we do need the government to act. We do need laws to protect. But it's realizing that sometimes you can, you can legislate, but you can't keep the heart from being expressing the darkness and the sin in it. And what we're seeing is that the violence picks on the most vulnerable doesn't pick on the most, you know, ready and prepared to fight it. Picks on the elderly. But also, you think about it, anybody that has a gun, you're you're vulnerable when they have a gun. And so there's there's a vulnerability that's being expressed and and being exploited during this time of anger. And so I wanted to stop as a church and to pray, but I also wanted to say this, the Church of Jesus Christ is multi-ethnic. It is every tongue. It is every tribe. It is every nation. The ground at the cross does not have stairs. It doesn't have one race at the top of the stairs and another in the middle and another at the bottom. The ground around the cross is level. And that's because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are equally the objects of the wrath of God. And yet the good news of Jesus Christ is for all nations and all peoples that when you receive Christ, you get the righteousness of Christ and you have the status of the firstborn son of God before the very throne of God. So you see, if I receive my status by his righteousness and you receive your status by His righteousness, then we are equals. No lesser than, no greater than, only equals. Equal status. Because Jesus was treated the way I deserved, so that now you and I are being treated the way Jesus deserves. And so when you see vulnerable people and you're not treating them like Jesus treats them, then you're not understanding the gospel. And the safest place on earth should be the church. This is one of my favorite things about Risen King. It's a little taste of heaven every Sunday because we have so many nations represented, so many ethnicities represented, so many 
economic, educational backgrounds represented, that's what heaven's going to be like. Because our connection is not to our ethnicity. It's to our new citizenship in heaven. And I'm connected to you whether you like it or not. Because you belong to Jesus and I belong to Jesus. You belong to me and I belong to you. And uh, I think today we need to extend our love, extend our protection, extend our authority in Christ over each other. Would you do that? Would you do this with me? Would you raise your hand to the Lord? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask now that this protection of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would extend over each and every one of us. But we extend our protection over those of our neighbors who are Asian descent, Asian Americans. We declare the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over life, over property, over their, um, their peace as they live this life in the U.S. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we appeal even to the authority of our founding documents that said all men are created equal. And uh, we declare equal access, equal protection. We declare equal opportunities for all people in these United States of America. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest things in any of our lives is to feel safe. It is a basic need. It's not a fallen need. It's not a sinful need. It's a human need. And so feeling safe is one of the big things. And so I think as we begin to speak to each other and become each other's protectors, become those who love like brothers and sisters, I think that one of the basic needs that we have gets met. And it's the presence of God in our midst by taking fear out of our way. So one of the things that we've been doing is we've been looking for and looking at what is the wisdom of God that gives spiritual discernment. And the thing that I want you to understand is that that wisdom from a biblical perspective is competence and even confidence in regards to how life really works. And so today we're looking at the foundations of spiritual discernment and what we're really going to look at is, is these two foundations. Is that you will, not have, you will not have spiritual discernment if you have not surrendered to the love of God. And you will not have spiritual discernment if you don't lean into the goodness of God. If you are easily rattled by life and begin to question the goodness of God or you begin to question the love of God, your discernment goes out the window. This must be an unshakable foundation. So let's talk about then how do we get there to be an unshakable people? Well, it, it, it comes from understanding the will of God in a much deeper way than what job should I take? Should I move to Chicago? Should I stay in New York? Who should I marry? It's more than that. It's more than... Should I attend this church or that church? God's will is that you become the person that from eternity you were destined to be. 
your true self in Christ. This is the will of God for you. So here's what I'd like you to do. Turn to one of your socially distanced neighbors. Point your righteous finger, not the one you use in the car. Point your righteous finger at him and say this. God's will for you is that you become the person that from all eternity you were destined to be. Your true self in Christ. You see, what we do is we get caught up in secondary things. See, God's will is that you discover the fullness of life. <laughs> this only happens as you surrender to His love. See, many of us, what we, what we try to do is stay willful and get the will of God. But you can't be willful and surrender to His will. You can't grimly determine, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat God like a diet. I'm not going to eat certain things, and I'm going to eat things that taste terrible. That's the way most people, that's religion. Religion is a diet. I stop eating certain things that I actually really like and long for, and I start eating these things that taste terrible. And that's religion. That's not the will of God for you. See, when you surrender to His love, you're surrendering to the source of life. And anything less than surrender is a willfulness that will not allow you to really know and experience the will of God for your life. Here's what God... I love this wording. I know, and some people might... might uh, you know, even confront me theologically for this wording, but I think this wording is true. The divine longing, in other words, what, what God longs for is to complete your transformation. He never gives up on this. This is, this is what He's driven to in your life. God's dream for you is that you become whole, that you become holy as you find your identity and your fulfillment in your union with the Lord God. You must understand, this is why just having a Christian morality is valuable to you in that it constrains your bad impulses, but is no good for you in terms of real spiritual discernment. Anything other than really beginning to understand this surrendering to His love is just dealing with secondary things. And what some people want, because they, they focus on the secondary aspects of your life, is they want a technique for figuring out what's right and what's wrong. They want a technique for figuring out what will get them punished, what will get them uh, flourishing or anything like this. Well, all these secondarily things in your life, God is using, even when you fail, God is using it to facilitate you becoming that person you always wanted to be. In other words, He puts those irritating bosses in your life. He, he, he puts you into situations where the pressure makes you have to see how broken you are. See, we will not abandon our own wisdom till we know it doesn't work. And we will only surrender to His wisdom when we realize this is the only source of strength, this is the only source of life that I have. To have a hybrid is still your wisdom, not God's. And so there has to be this kind of pressure 
And usually it's people. The curriculum of the Holy Spirit is usually to put irritating people in your life. But they're usually mirrors to your soul. So here's the issue then. So God's interest, your interest might be totally different from God's, but God's interest, which he will never relent from, his interest is that you, that who you are is more important than what you do. So one way that the writer put it was this. He said, God's interest in what we do grows out of much more fundamental interest in who we are. His will for us is centered around increasing our capacity for intimacy with him. Now, don't misunderstand me here. What you do is a great diagnostic for who you think you are. And what, how you behave, how you feel, how you react is telling you, even if you're saying, you know, I'm committed to a holy life, but if all this unholiness comes out of you, something's disconnected there. There, there should be, and this is the will of God for your life, there should be harmony, there should be sameness between your public self and your private self. Now the issue is that some people have harmony, they're screwed up publicly and privately. But the idea, and you're like, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. Yeah, but you're a mess. So the idea here is God saying, I want you to have wholeness in your private life, and I want your public appearance to be an expression of your private wholeness. Any of us can fake it till we make it. There's no value in that. Not spiritually. Now, there's a value that you fool people, but it's hypocrisy. And that which is a lie can never be blessed by the God who is the spirit of truth. And so what he's looking for is that your private life would have the same wholeness that then produces a public life of wholeness. Man, I mean, doesn't it wreck you when you find out that people who are, who are respected actually had very corrupt private lives? Doesn't it undo their authority? And yet all of us have this issue that privately we're one thing and publicly we want people to think we're another. And God says, I'm not committed to that. I'm committed to showing you you can't live like that. And usually you marry the person who will make you most reveal that you're not all that you try to be for everybody else. Nobody, nobody knows how broken I am more than my wife. Nobody knows where my limits of wholeness are more than my wife. And yet many of us, instead of recognizing marriage, family, friendships as a, as a laboratory for agape love, when it gets tough, we leave. Because that person doesn't look at me the way I want them to look at me, or they don't make me feel the way I want them to make me feel. And so we blame the other person instead of saying, man, God brought this person in my life to show me I'm not who I think I am. Oh, come on, that's pretty good right there. Are you just mad at me for saying it to you? You're like, you're the irritating one in my life right now, Mike. You understand, if you really want to be spiritually discerning, discerning and have an overcoming life, the only way to do that is, is an intense intimacy with God. But what happens is this. 
His will for you is always centered around increasing your capacity for that kind of intimacy. Now, it really hit me for the first time this week what this means. I went uh, last Sunday night and spent a few days with my son. It was his 40th birthday. And as I was with him and celebrating his 40th birthday, I'm, I'm not as old as he is. I'll just, no, I'm kidding. You can tell. I, I felt weird to have a son who's 40 years old. But I could remember so vividly the day he was born. He was, not, you know, he was nine and a half pounds. He was 22 and a half inches long. The nurse said, you need to get that kid a job fast. And when I took him into my, into my arms, I can tell you with complete certainty, something changed in me. Sort of a, a irresponsible boy became a strongly responsible man in that moment because I said, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you. You're my son. And then I, you realize when they're little babies, there's not much intimacy. I mean, there's not much communication. There was a lot of screaming. <laughs> hungry, you knew they were hungry. You knew when they needed changing. You knew when they wanted to be held. But, but it wasn't because hold me was said. It wasn't because, hey, I got something in my diaper was said. It was because they screamed. And you're like, okay, there's usually three or four things that this means. Which one is it? You smelled for one. You went and found food for another, you know, kind of a thing. What I'm, I, I'm trying to get across to you, a baby's father can have the total commitment to protect, to provide, to love, but there's no interchange. When you are born of the Spirit of God, it says you were born, so you are born a baby. So in order to have intimacy with God, who has, from the moment you're born again, who says, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will love you. You are my beloved, he says, but all you can do is scream, I'm hungry. All you can do is scream, you know, things are not going well. You can't enter into the Father's world until you start to grow as a person who can have interpersonal relationship with God. And what I see with so many people in the church is they're still babies in Christ and wondering why they don't experience more of God. Come on. I mean, one of the things that was awesome this week is here's where my family connects. We find good food at a good restaurant and we sit and we talk. And so there I was with my 40-year-old son and I'm talking with him and we're going over the last 40 years and we're talking about family stuff and all kinds of things. And then I ask him a question and he shuts down. Because for some reason, I just have this ability to ask him the wrong question. His mother always asks him the question and away he answers. I ask him and it shuts down. I hit a wall. You know what? What I've learned is if I'm really going to... If I'm really going to be intimate with my children, I have to enter their world. I can't make them enter mine. Now, my question was perfectly legitimate. 
My question was out of love. My question was a question that I wanted to know the answer because I want to know my son. But it was a question that was not phrased or framed in a way that he could answer me. You understand, intimacy, intimacy has to be entering each other's world, speaking each other's language, and then figuring out how to get past each other's walls. Now, God has entered into your world. He has spoken the word, Jesus, in your language. And he has broken down the wall of sin and death, the wall of hostility between him and us. And now he's asking that for you to be spiritually discerning, you begin to enter his world. See, you could say to me, well, you know, I just want God to enter my world. God has entered your world. You now have the divine, resident, Holy Spirit in your very spirit. The question is, will you now enter into his world? Because if you enter into his world, that's where the love is. That's where the life is. That's where the wisdom is. But you have to grow in your capacity to interact with him. The development of interpersonal intimacy demands the development of a discerning heart on your part. This is why you have to lean into his love, lean into his goodness. Think about any relationship you have with anybody you really care about. And you really love them. Do minimal obedience requirements satisfy that love? I know with Lisa, even if I were to say to her, hey, honey, I took out the trash. Hey, honey, I paid all the bills. And she says, yeah, but I want you to sit down and have a conversation with me. I said, but I paid the bills. No, I, I, I want you to focus and I want to talk about our future and I want to talk about our dreams and I want to talk about the longings of our heart. Well, you know, I got to go take care of the car. What would she say? She said, well, you're, you're fulfilling minimal obedience, but you're not loving me. You're not connecting. You're not personal. And one of the things I, I know in a marriage that if, that if you get disconnected, if the person feels like you're not inside the circle of intimacy, then you're just living parallel lives, which is not what marriage is for. Truth is, it's not even what friendship is for. And what you understand, and, and you understand this intuitively, is that when you really love something or someone, you become incredibly attentive to the deepest longings of your beloved. And you begin to get a willingness, not a, oh gosh, she's going to make me talk to her again kind of thing, but you get a willingness that says, I want to meet you. I want to connect with you because meeting with you and connecting with you gives me joy Here, here's the truth if this isn't true of your personal relationships it will not be true of your relationship with God if you're unable to have this kind of intimacy with those you do see how are you going to have this kind of intimacy with one you do not see and so that's why I say again most of your relationships are the laboratory that the Holy Spirit uses 
to develop agape love in you. So uh, let me get, you know, like you're getting personal enough, but I'm going to get a little more personal. Out of woundedness, out of disappointment, out of betrayal, out of abuse, many of you have put up walls to protect yourself. Well, what happens is that anybody who loves you stays outside of those walls. Because at one point, you let someone who didn't love you inside the wall. And what happens is then the wall is not discerning. The wall just keeps everybody out. And many Christians, because they are so damaged in their personal intimacies, their personal relationships, many Christians keep God on the outside. Even as I'm saying this, I have a vision of some of you. And what you do is you have a SWAT shield. You have that plexiglass, that whatever it is you can see through, but you make sure no one gets through. And you see, if God is on the outside of that, you can know about God, but you won't encounter God in the deepest, most personal way of your life. The truth is, if those who love you are outside that shield, they can see you, but they can't reach you. There is, I'm saying this to you because there is no great discernment in your life if you cannot surrender to love. And you say to me, but you don't know how much I've been hurt. Yes, I don't know how much you've been hurt, but I know how much you can be healed. Think about this with me. We become discerning about anything we love. I mean, I'm 62 years old. I can remember my batting averages from Little, Little League. My second year, I batted 431. My third year, I batted 461, a little bit better. Why do I remember that? Because I loved it. Because it wasn't on the left side of my brain where I'm analytical and where I, you know, I'm logical. It's, it's all the way into the right side in the memories that I treasure. Here's what I know from studying the brain. If you only deal with things on the left side, you forget them. So my wife used to say to me when, when our kids were little, hey, we're out of milk, go make sure you get some milk on the way home from work. I'd say, sure, honey, and forget. But then when I got home and she said, you don't care about us? I think you want a divorce? I think, I think you don't love us. You're not a good father. Suddenly I care. Because now she's given me emotional value. She's given impact. So I'm thinking, I better get the milk or I'm going to get a divorce. <laughs> you understand? It's the same milk. It's the same family. But suddenly it's about the one I love. Suddenly it's about the person I love and the children I love. See, when she just said it to me, I didn't make that impact whatsoever. But when she yelled at me, I understood the impact. Come on, I'm saving you counseling time right now. You understand what I'm saying? So all the time, you probably have heard when you forgot to do something, you're like, well, I just forgot. And they're like, no, you don't love me. Because see, you didn't put the importance of the action as being an act for your beloved. And so what, what the whole of spiritual dis, 
discernment. The whole of your life has to be, I am acting for my beloved because my beloved has acted for me. And if it's not that, it's just religion. And if it's just religion, then you're far from God and you're just doing it for yourself anyway. So the question is, what do you love? The question is, who do you love? So to discern, like we've been talking about, is actually to begin to know the heart of the beloved. Only then can this intimacy be deepened. Discernment cannot be a technique. It's love for God at the deepest level. Would you, would you think through this statement? Just kind of get it engraved in your mind. It's a very powerful statement. I am my beloved's and he is mine. See, anything that God is asking you, it isn't simply go to the store and get some milk. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's saying, do you know that you are my beloved and are you responding as my beloved? Because in the end, anything you really love, you remember. Anything you really love, you do because you do it for the beloved. There are things that I do for those I love I would never do for anyone else. But I do it, and it's a joy to do it, and it's a joy to see the smile on their face because they are my beloved. So would you say this with me? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. You've Whatever happens in your life, whatever trials come, whatever difficult people come up, you've got to have this engraved at the very heart of your heart. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And if he's asking you to take down a wall, a wall of emotion, a wall of protection, a wall of of, of keeping away from being hurt by people. If he's saying, bring that wall down, he's your beloved. And you are his beloved. And guess when he usually asks you to take it down? In the moment with a person. Whether it's a spouse, a co-worker, a friend. I've been here 17 years. There are many people I've reached out to over these 17 years. But I remember this one guy that I spent a lot of time with. And, and at first it was because he was excited I was mentoring him or discipling him. At one point, though, I found the wall. And I said, are you going to let me through the wall? Are you going to let me lead you closer to Jesus? And he said, no. And he actually began to attack me. He actually went door to door of the members of the church to say mischaracterizations about me and my a actions because instead of taking down the wall, he wanted to take me down. It's not easy. It's not easy when you built the wall so thick, when abuse, neglect, disappointment, it's not easy to say, I will risk. But the beloved is asking you to risk. And he is your beloved and you are his beloved. That's why you can't really become spiritually discerning unless you surrender to his love. Again, think about this commandment. 
love the Lord your God with all your walls. Love him until you get a wall that's going to stop him. No, it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And really what it's saying is this. If you love him that much, then you will be able to love your neighbor. And you won't hate yourself. You understand, a wall is basically you saying, I hate myself. I don't want anyone to see how exposed I am. I don't want to see how fearful I am. I don't want anyone to see uh, this, this bad spot. See, you cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're not honest. Many people are truthful. They don't tell lies, but they don't disclose their hearts either. You cannot be filled with the Spirit of truth if you're blocking out the Spirit of truth. So what does this mean? Well, it means this, that you have to decide which direction your life is going. Are you flirting with God? People with walls are just flirting with God. Flirting with God or holding him off in a sense? Are you learning to say, I'm going to align my heart no matter what. I'm going to align myself with him and with his kingdom. Think about what Jesus said. The heart cannot have two masters. You can only have then one basic heart allegiance. And you have to decide, what's my allegiance? Is my allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus only? See, religion helps us fool ourselves because it makes us think we're doing things that are in allegiance to God, but really it's about us. It's about getting God in our debt. It's about getting some kind of leverage with God. It's about saying, God, you owe me. God, how can you let this happen to me? I pray all the time. God, I read my Bible. I go to church. I listen to that guy that speaks for 45 minutes without stopping. You should owe me for that. But, but God says, wait, is your basic allegiance to me or is it to yourself? You see, anything else your allegiance, your allegiance is given to is really about you. It's not about it. The only way that you really get rid of your idolatry and self-centeredness is to begin to say, my allegiance is to you, God. It's so interesting, too, that I, I began to realize that, that the older you get, you start to realize your, your heart is trying to find this one direction, like this one thing that will make the difference in your life. Well, that's the way God made you. See, if your elite, truest basic allegiance is to God, then everybody in your life will benefit. If my allegiance is to God primarily, absolutely, it'll bless my wife. It'll bless my kids. It'll bless you as my church because my allegiance to Him will give me the love not only for him, but give me the capacity of love from him that will then make it to where I don't hate myself and I can love you because I love me. You understand, anytime you hate somebody else, it's because you hate yourself. Because you're trying to prove they're worse than you. It's the abusers in studies that I've read are people who think themselves inferior so they use their physical superiority to oppress those who they think are superior to them. It's a sick world. And what we have to have is you and I have to be honest and begin to say, I need a pure 
allegiance. I need a pure direction. And the only one that counts is towards Jesus. If I make, as great as my wife is, if I made her my basic life allegiance, I would destroy our marriage. Because I would make her my idol. Which means I would try to control her, manipulate her, be angry and disappointed with her when she isn't what I want her to be. The great thing when your allegiance is to God, you can allow other people to be who they are and enjoy them and experience love from them. Otherwise, you're still trying to control them while you think you're doing self-protection. Well, if we get to that place then where we're starting to say, Lord, I want this capacity. This is going to be, this is a tough part you have to begin to realize that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you don't have capacity for goodness. But to really run with God the way you were made to run with God, you have to have an ever-increasing capacity of goodness. Not good like this world says is good, but real goodness. A lack of selfishness, a nobility, a truthfulness walls down because it's not about you anymore. How do we get there? Well, Micah helps us. It's interesting that a lot of times when people are talking about the injustice in the world, they go to Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God? But they leave out the context. And so they minimize what Micah is saying. Today, I'd like to maximize what he's saying because I believe you and I are called to be the people who embody this prophecy. Am I asking too much of you? Are you tired? I'm doing all the work here. Come on, we can do this. All right? We can be the people who live this out, but we have to understand it first. So we read it with me out loud. I like it when we read out loud. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So if you're to walk in discernment, if you're to walk with God, what Mike is saying is you have to have the capacity for good. Not nicer, not better, good. And this takes a reckoning. And the reckoning is this. There is a lot of darkness in the human heart. Do not forget what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. They said to him, should we just kill all those guards who oppressed you and persecuted you? Should we just get rid of those people? And Solzhenitsyn said, that would not save us. He said, the line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. And until we recognize this darkness in our own souls, we will not have capacity for good. And think about what we're living in now. 
One writer said this, if anything takes away the social pressure that restrains the darkness of the human heart, the darkness explodes. Haven't we seen that where internet anonymity, people blaming people for other things almost gives them the right to kill people, gives them the right to destroy people that they think are to blame. Us against them, dividing us so carefully so that we hate one another on basis that almost seem insurmountable. When the restraints come off, the explosion of darkness multiplies. C.S. Lewis said it this way, human beings do not need improvement, they need redemption, not nicer, new. So here's, I hear that music and I'm not going to listen to it. I, 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 you got to stay with me on this, okay? All right, here's the deal. Micah goes and says, how do I come before the Lord? You understand? It's not that I don't want a voice with government. It's not that we don't want a voice with a political system. But what we really need is a standing before God. You need it for yourself. You need it for your family. And what Micah's saying is, on what basis can I come and stand before God? How can I know Him? How can I know that I'm accepted, that my words reach Him and are heard by Him? And here's what Micah's saying. He's saying, God is eternal. I'm just mortal. God is immense. I'm just small. God is infinite and we are finite. You understand, Micah's saying there's a chasm that has to be mediated. There's a chasm for which there has to be a bridge. Now, we're living in a society that has thrown away the idea of that chasm. That has gotten rid of the idea that God is a transcendent God. We talk to God like He's just one of us. You get a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. As if, as if there is no transcendence, as if there's no chasm, as if there's no gap. But that is not what ancient wisdom talked about. God, look at Job for 37 chapters is saying, God, I need to speak with you. God, I need an audience with you. I want you to explain yourself. And God says, okay, let me speak. And he says to Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then he says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And then he explains how he made the dimensions and all these things. You understand when Job says, I'm going to question you, God says, no, I'm going to question you first. And he says, my favorite one is this one. He says, where were you when I birthed the sea? and swaddled it with the clouds. See, until we get this, we will not have any discernment. You're not talking to a peer. You're not talking to an equal. You're talking to the transcendent, exalted God. How can we come into relationship and intimacy without a capacity for goodness? And so Micah says there are wrong answers. The first thing he says is this. He says, what if I came with all the wealth of the world? You see, rivers of oil is billions of dollars. What if I come with all the rams? What if I come with all this? Will that do anything? And Micah says, no, it will not put me in right standing. You understand that all those years of sacrifice had never atoned for a single sin. 
Then he says this, shall I bring a sin offering? And he says, shall I bring what is most precious to me, my own son? Shall I bring my firstborn for the, for the very fact of all my sins? And Micah says, no, even our sin is too great to atone for that. Micah says, there's nothing you can do that gives you a right standing with God in the midst of the darkness of this world. And then he says this, he has shown you what is good to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Now he's getting deeper and deeper into it. You see what co the context here, Micah is, is, is not denying the main message of the Old Testament. Think with me about Isaiah 64, 6. All of us, Isaiah says, have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. See, he's not saying, okay, you know, these other things don't work, so try your best to be just. Try your best, you know, to be merciful and kind. Try your best to be humble. The, the truth is, if you don't, if you're not honest about this, you're not going to go anywhere. You're not just. You're not kind. And you're definitely not humble. Have you ever heard someone say, in all humility? They got no humility. Are you here, someone? I just want to tell you about my humility. You're like, you're not humble. So what is it that Micah is saying? He's saying this. God gave his people two things to constitute being his people. He gave them the law and he gave them the tabernacle. He told them what to do, but then he had to give them the tabernacle. Why? Because he knew they wouldn't do it. And so there had to be a place of atonement. There had to be a place of sacrifice. So what we have here, this offer of the son is the big deal. See, the life of every family, the firstborn of the family was forfeit. The firstborn belonged to God. They had to actually ransom the firstborn by paying a, a sacrifice. And, and, and the Old Testament law was this, your, your family is so sinful your family is so hopeless that the only way that you can in any way hope for your family is if you offer your firstborn to God. And then they would pay the ransom and then their, their, their child would live. Well, what Micah is talking about here is he's saying, I'm standing in between the work of two fathers, two significant events of two fathers. And the first father was Abraham. And you remember the promise to Abraham was that through his seed, the whole earth would be blessed and he would be a blessing. But then when he has a son, when he has Isaac, God goes back to that law and says, your firstborn belongs to me. He's forfeit to you. And he says, take Isaac to the mountain. Offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham takes him and ties him up and takes the knife and is about to bring the knife down on Isaac. And the angel of the Lord says, don't hurt him. Don't touch him. Now I know, the angel says, that you love the Lord because you held not back your only son. Now, fast forward. Micah is looking forward to the father who takes his son to a mountain, a mountain called Calvary. And he puts him up on a tree and he nails him to the tree. And no one says, don't touch him, don't hurt him. This son is given by the father for your sin, for my sin. 
and your heart should cry like the angels cried. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that I am your beloved because you held not back your only son. stand with me as we close in prayer today both in this service and the first service I've just been struck by the magnitude of our God to know that someone so holy so other than so magnificent so much so that I can't even comprehend would send his son to die on my behalf would send his son so that I could have the capacity to love him and to love others. And uh, for those of you that don't know, I, I have four kids. And so even Pastor Mike's illustration of, of his relationship with his son, I know that as a mom, I have to speak the language of my kids. Each one of them speaks a different language. And if I want to have relationship with them, I have to enter their world and understand them. That's the kind of closeness I want to have with them. And it takes energy and it takes work and it takes recognizing that what you do with one doesn't work for the other. But what's so powerful, friends, is that this is what our God did. He sent his son to enter our world, to speak our language, to speak your language. And he is here today speaking that language in a way that you would understand that the God of the universe the God that is so magnificent and so big in a way that we can't comprehend wants us to comprehend that he loves us. And he wants us to live in that love and understand that love so that we can walk in that love for others. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the sacrifice that was made on my behalf. I just feel the sense of your love in this place. God, as we, as we approach as a, as a Christian church Easter coming, just this image of you sending your son to die on that cross is so meaningful and significant this morning. God, you paid the ultimate sacrifice, and you paid it for me. You paid it for us so that we could have the capacity to love you and to be close to you and to be accepted by you and to learn your language and to be people who speak your language to others. So God, I just want to say thank you this morning for lo loving us so deeply and so intensely that you would stop at nothing to have us. Father, may we grow in our capacity to understand this. 